Stella, thank you for reading God's word to us uh, tonight, and uh, thank you for that. Well, this evening we are going to look at uh, Romans chapter 1. I will focus our thoughts on, on just the first four verses, but before I do that, uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity for us to listen to your word. Thank you for the freedom we have in this land to meet like this and to come under the teaching of your word. And we pray tonight that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would challenge us, that our lives would be shaped and transformed by the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, it is the first Sunday in December, right? And uh, you put your Christmas tree on the first. We got ours up yesterday, and it is still a work in progress. But we've managed lots of decorations so far. Lots more work to be done anyway. Well, it's that time of the year, and I'm sure most of us are busy, perhaps, planning our Christmas lunches, dinners, Perhaps you got your, your list of gifts that you got to buy and presents, and that list keeps growing and growing, and, uh, and it's a busy time, but it's also a wonderful time of the year. It's a time that we will reflect, think uh, about what the real meaning of Christmas is. And so we pray that as we focus our hearts and minds on Christmas, that we will also be inspired by God's Word to think about, in fact, the real meaning of Christmas. This morning, I preached from Luke uh, chapter 1. And we uh, looked at four aspects of Christ, uh, his, great, his greatness, his throne, um, and his, his kingship, uh, the fact that he's a great leader, and we looked at the implications of that in Luke chapter 1. And tonight, I'm uh, going to speak from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and I've titled the message, Christmas and God's Gospel. Christmas and God's Gospel, and hopefully you will see in a moment why I have given this title for this message. But before we look at uh, our text tonight, let me si just say a few words about the book of Romans. Have you, most of you read the book of Romans? I raised your hands. But some of you have. That's good. Well, you're brave enough. That's great. All right. Uh, the book of Romans has been an incredible book, really. Uh, just to say a few words of this book, it's been an incredible influence uh, in the lives of many let me just highlight two. There was a brilliant young man who was overcome with everything in the world and was a rising figure in the world and in the religious world as well. And nothing in this world provided the answer for his quest for life. He lived life to the fullest. He tried everything possible under the sun. He lived an immoral life, though he had a mother called Monica who was praying for him. And one day, his quest for life kind of overcame him. And it is said that on this day, he was spending time in the garden. Not a bad thing to do for a young person, isn't it? And he was despairing over his immoral lifestyle. And it is said that he heard a girl, or perhaps a boy's voice, saying, Tole lege, tole lege. Do you know what that translates? It's a Latin phrase. Tole lege, tole lege. And it means take up and read. Take up and read. Upon hearing this voice, he began reading from Romans chapter 13. 13 verse 14 in particular, which reads as follows. 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he was converted and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. You know his name? Augustine. Right, well done. Right, it was St. Augustine who became the bishop of Hippo in 395 BC and, uh, and in, sorry, in 395 and he exerted an enormous influence on the church. Now, there was another man who was converted by reading this book. This man read in particular Romans chapter 1 verse 17 and it was this and it is this. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Who was this man? Martin Luther. All right. This man was none other than the great reformer Martin Luther. And so we have the Reformation. We had the Reformation on October 31st, 1517. And by the way, next year will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And if you feel led, you might want to have a special offering to send John and myself on a Reformation tour next year. <laughs> have a think about that anyway. <laughs> you, have, you have a long time to pray and, and collect the money, okay? No, I'm just joking. Right, so the book of Romans has been an incredible influence on the lives of many, and I've just named two. And there are significant themes in the book of Romans. It's a solid theological treatise. It's a it's a book that is so deep, it is so rich in its theology, it deals with such deep subjects such as justification by faith in Christ alone, how is a person made right with God, it deals with the subject of adoption as to how we are adopted into the family of God, it deals with the issue of sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it deals with the history of Israel and living by faith, and it gives us an incredible comfort as well, which says in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So this book is a tremendous book. I encourage you to read it. It is deep. It will sharpen our theology. It will make us theologians. Okay? All right. So that's just a little bit about this book. And so tonight, we're going to look at this passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, just four verses. All right? And we're going to look at this text under the following three headings. It's simple headings here, the calling, the promise, and the declaration. You should be able to remember this hopefully at the end of the service, uh, service all right? The calling, the promise, and the declaration. Just four verses. Well, let's look at the calling or the call. Look at your, your Bibles in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In one sentence, Paul tells us who he is. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, he's an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel. Notice how Paul introduces himself to the Roman church and to this world. Paul, uh, in fact, chooses to call himself a doulos meaning a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul could have introduced himself in glowing other ways, all right? Now, perhaps that's not the greatest introduction you're going to do if you're doing a presentation somewhere. Perhaps you're doing a presentation for your workplace. You're not going to get up there and say, well, I am a servant of this company or this and that. Uh, this is who I am, right? 
Rather, you'll be putting your best foot forward. This is my credentials. This is who I am. But look at how Paul comes out here as a servant. So, for example, Paul could have introduced himself in the following. He could have said, I am an eminent scholar. Paul, listen to me. Or he could have said, I am an eminent theologian because at the age of 13, I was sent to be educated by a prominent scholar, a rabbi named Gamaliel, well-known scholar. In fact, uh, we read of this. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul studied Jewish history. He studied the works of the prophets, of the Psalms. He acquired the skills needed to debate the finer points of theology. In today's standards, some theologians and some commentators would say that Paul would have had a couple of PhDs. Right? That's Paul. He also went on to become a lawyer, becoming a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish supreme court. So we get the point, don't we? He could have started off and said, look at me, man. Look at my credentials. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that tremendous? Look at what I've achieved. No, no. Instead, he chooses to introduce himself as a doulos, as a bond servant, as a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant. Now, those with a Jewish, uh, sorry, with a Greek heritage would have looked at this word doulos and looked at Paul and said, this guy is a no good guy. He's just a servant. The Jewish crowd would have looked at him and said, oh, this, he is a servant of Jesus Christ, and they would have tried to work out the theology around this. But Paul here approaches his life and his ministry as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul do this? Why? Let me just give you some background to this guy, Paul, who was called Saul. Have a look with uh, well, Galatians chapter 1, 13 and 14. This is, this is Saul. This is Paul now. So we know Saul's name was changed to Paul. Okay, so we'll keep him at Paul at this stage. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous for, was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Paul, look at it. I persecuted. Who did he persecute? Christians. So Paul was a persecutor. He went out violently against the people who were called the way. And he was attacking Christians. Zealous for Judaism. Now what has happened to this guy? How come he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ? You know, this is what happened to Saul. Have a, if, I mean, you can read Read it later, perhaps, in, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. This is what happened to Saul. 9, 1 to 5. But Saul, have a look at that text. It's very interesting. Still breathing threats and murder. Okay, so threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, the, the, the people of the way are, are Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So far, that's Paul's strategy. Then what happens? Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And as he's going, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Get this. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you see that? Now, where was Jesus? I mean, did, did, did Paul actually persecute Jesus? No. Paul was persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, as you are persecuting Christians, you're actually persecuting me. And guess what happens to this guy, Saul? Saul is converted. And then we see in, in verse 13 of, of Acts chapter 9, Ananias, there's Ananias involved in that and so forth. And uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. This is Ananias because Paul had to go to Ananias. He was blinded. Uh, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to me, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And this is what the Lord says to Paul in, in verse 16 of Acts chapter 9. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right? Incredible. This guy, he's going out, he meets Jesus, and there's an encounter with the risen Christ and his life is changed. Paul or Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the preacher. That's what's happened. He met Christ. And so Paul's life was never the same again, for he encountered the risen Jesus Christ, and by God's grace, his life was transformed, and so he sees himself as a servant of Christ. He has a servant heart and a servant attitude. Do we? How about my attitude? Do I have a servant heart? Am I, am I willing to serve? How am I serving Christ today? I want to ask you if you're a Christian here this morning, I mean this evening, not morning. <laughs> How are you serving Christ? What is your attitude? in serving Jesus? What is your attitude in serving others? What is your attitude in serving his church? Is there a servant spirit? So Christ has changed his life and God in his grace called and appointed him as an apostle and apostle is one who is sent, set apart for the gospel. And uh, let's see now the promise that we have in this text as well. Look at your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. This gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So let me ask you the question, friends. What is the origin of this good news? Was the gospel something that was invented by some human being or some monks somewhere? What is this gospel? The word gospel comes from two Greek words, meaning good news. It's called euangelion, meaning good and it is news. And in some, this word means glad tidings, 
bringing good news. And so Paul now explains and gives his readers an exposition of the origin of the gospel. Because I think we need to get this right. Okay? Look at what the Bible tells us. In Romans chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 1b, for example. This gospel is called the gospel of whom? Anyone, anyone? Yes? Jesse, not you. Thanks, thanks for that. Anyone else? It's called the gospel of? I'll take that, Jesse. All right. It's the gospel of God. All right? That's what we see here. This, the gospel is God's gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So when did God make this promise? And to understand this better, friends, let me take you back very quickly to Genesis. When God created the world, everything was good and there was no rebellion in the created order. Adam and Eve were created perfect, everything was fine. But we know in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that they rebelled against God and there were consequences for their sin. They did not obey Him. Remember God said to, uh, to Eve, you shall not eat of any fruit. What did she do? She ate and she gave it to Adam and he ate. And then they started the blame game. It's not my fault, God. It's her fault. This, it was this woman's fault. It was the serpent's fault. It's not mine. Right? But they did it. They disobeyed God. And we can read of this in Genesis 2. And we can see how Satan came in the form of a serpent. And Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. And in doing so, Adam and Eve found themselves separated from God. And they had to be condemned, rightly so. Indeed, God did judge them in Genesis chapter 3, 16 to 19. But he showed grace to Adam and to Eve. And so, let me say this. In Genesis chapter 3, the gospel was preached. Why do I say it? Look at Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, so God's talking to Satan here, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I mean, snakes, slithering things, right? Scary things all over the place. You know, when I used to live in Sri Lanka, I encountered lots of snakes. In fact, uh, uh, one of the roofs in one of the sheds that I had in our backyard, uh, I, I was in this shed and I saw a snake above my head going around. It was quite common actually. Quite scary when you think about it now. Right. <laughs> snakes. We don't want to go close to snakes, right? But look at Genesis 3, 15. This is a key text. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then guess, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the gospel that's being preached. Right? Christ is going to crush the head of Satan and he's going to suffer and humanity is going to have this seed and God is going to do something because God is the God of grace. He could have let Adam and Eve suffer there. He could have let them die. But in his grace, he says, I am going to do something. I am going to send a redeemer. And so theologians call this the proto-evangelium, which is the first gospel that God preached out of his grace 
and out of his love. So God cursed the serpent. The serpent's going to crawl. All of these things we see. The one who said will be bruised. The one who will suffer a crushing blow is Satan himself. And this is what happened in God's timing. Jesus defeated Satan. Where? On the cross. And this is the gospel that God promised beforehand. And this is what we celebrate, friends, even uh, tonight, because this gospel is so precious. Dr. Asis Prowl, a tremendous theologian, puts it this way. The gospel Paul is called to proclaim is not merely good news about God. Rather, the gospel is God's possession. It is his property. It, in, in this regard, the original owner and author of the gospel is God himself. So tonight, if someone was to ask you, who is the author of the gospel? Who is the, who, who is the, the, the instigator of the gospel? It's God. Uh, John Piper has written a fantastic book. I was going to bring this book this evening, actually. It's in my office. He says, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. And I, it's an excellent read because it defines the clarity of this gospel because understanding the gospel will impact your life. And it will impact my life because it takes us right to our understanding of who we are before God, our sin, and it shows us God's amazing grace, his amazing love, and his amazing power. You know, the first time I heard the gospel, I didn't uh, sit in church as many times like you guys perhaps have done all your life. Right? I was spending most of my weekends, I've said this before, playing cricket. I love my cricket. I, I hardly went to church. I just went in occasionally to please my mom. Right. And then I was converted. Actually, I was converted in a, in, a, in, a, in a zoology lab dissecting animals. And that's where I came to faith in Christ. It's still so fresh in my mind. And here I heard this gospel. And I heard about God's amazing love. And I heard about what Christ has done for me. And I began to understand. And as my friend began to unpack this gospel, I began to see my own sin and the amazing goodness and the grace and the power of Christ in the good news. So friends, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. So have a look at your text. This gospel he promised beforehand. How? Through the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. The prophets spoke of Jesus in the, in the scriptures. This gospel is concerning his son. It's all about Jesus. And I titled the message, as I said, Christmas and God's gospel. And you may wonder now this evening, what's the connection with Christmas, right? I put that question at the start, remember? Well, let me ask you, can you see a connection to the Christmas story in our passage? Can you see any connection? There is a clue. There's a clue here. Look at verse 3. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll read 2 and 3. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's the Christmas connection, right? Jesus was born in the line of King David. What's the connection? Well, we read Jeremiah, didn't we? Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David. What is it? Or who is it? 
a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And God, God in his amazing grace, in time, sent his son in the line of David, one who is bigger, one who is greater than David, the one who is going to be enthroned, the one who is the king eternal, the better king than David. And God sent his son in the Davidic line, keeping this promise, this righteous branch, this is the king, this is the Messiah, he is the anointed one who is spoken of here in Jeremiah 23, and he would rule as king in the line of David, a greater king than David. And God fulfilled his promise by sending his son into the world as a descendant of David, greater than David, to be born of a woman on that very first Christmas, keeping his promise. Man, one born as a child in his humanity, fully flesh. Did we say that? That Christ came in the flesh and yet without sin. Jesus, the pre-existent one, took on human flesh and was born as a sinless child to identify with mankind, a descendant of David, born as a redeemer. That's the message. You see, God has done it. God keeps his word. God is a promise keeper. He made it to David. He kept his word. And in time, he came. What a blessing. Right? That is the Christ of Christmas, yeah? That is the Jesus that I want, I trust you and I will know and continue to know tonight. This is the good news. And the good news is that God has loved us with an everlasting love. And he has not left us like that, but he has sent a redeemer, Jesus. Are you excited about that? Yeah? Are you challenged by this Jesus tonight? Are you giving thanks to who this Christ is in your life and mine? I trust that we will by God's grace. And then have a look at verse 4. Another incredible verse here. And was declared to be... Son of God, in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, he says that God's Son was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. But what we see is that Jesus, for, for Jesus to rise from the dead, meant that he had to die, right? And that's what happened. Right? By giving his life, Jesus is our substitute. He gave his life for our sin at the cross and he took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. You know, those who are doing their profession of faith classes with me, if you're here tonight, there is one word that I've told you you should memorize, you should know, and that word is the word, come on, don't let me down, right, if you're in the class. Ah, oh, substitution, good, right? I love it, right? The word substitution. If I want to put a theological word to that, I would say substitutionary atonement. Now, that's a big word. It essentially means that Christ is our substitute. That is, he took your place, he took my place on the cross because we could have never paid a price for our sin. But he took upon himself the wrath of God for our sin. Tonight, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? 
And the Lord's Supper is an amazing reminder to you and to me of God's perfect love, his profound love, his personal love in his son, Jesus Christ. Oh man, the lights are responding to that. <laughs> They're good, right? Even the lights are responding to that. You have no excuse, right? You see, this is God's son. This is what Christ has done. This is what keeps the ministry of God's church going. This is what keeps, I believe, every Christian going. I remember once attending a, a, a conference overseas, and this preacher, he said, he said to us preachers, go and preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. I caught up with him afterwards and said, why is that? He said, the more you preach the gospel to yourself, you will see your sin and you will see God's grace and it will transform your life to be a servant of Christ because when you preach it constantly to yourself, I don't know about you, the more I preach to myself, one, I'm, I'm absolutely awestruck, I'm absolutely amazed, I can't even still work this gospel out in my own life, it is something beyond me, it's incomprehensible to me, but I see the grace of God and I see my own sin and I see the love of God. And that love is for you and for me. How wonderful is that, right? That is the glorious message of Christ, the Christ of Christmas. And notice in our text, friends, Jesus died. It's amazing how much we can get from four verses, isn't it? Right? He died, and then what happens here? That the Son of God, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, that is the Spirit of God, by his resurrection from the dead, so Christ died, and he rose from the dead, and now Jesus Christ is declared as the Son of God. Let me clarify. It doesn't mean that at that point he's declared Son of God. We know he was Son of God already. But the point is this. If Christ died and was buried and did not rise from the dead, then there is no gospel. Would you worship a dead Savior? Might as well have been at home today. Watch the New Zealand-Aussie cricket match. Right? Rested, slept in. Why come and waste an afternoon here, uh, evening on Sunday evening here, right? If Christ is dead. Yeah, I mean, it's a waste of time. A absolute waste of time. Uh, this is a waste of time for me as well. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And you know what the implications of that is? Staggering. I'll just say one. The implications of that is that we have everlasting life. Life beyond the grave. And because Christ has written, risen, it means that you and I are sanctified, set apart for God. We are justified in his blood and his seal is on our lives that we are sealed in Christ because of the risen Jesus. And this risen Jesus walks with us every day, right? And we can talk to him. That's why we pray, correct? I mean, if, if Christ is not alive, what's the purpose of praying? Where would you be praying to? Or who would you be praying to? But our Savior is alive. So tonight, as we wind up, okay, the, our text tells us also that he is Lord. I mean, look at that. That, that, that. That's a sermon. That's a message in and of itself, and we won't go into that too much this evening. But he is Lord. And so we see the conclusion. Let me conclude this message tonight with a challenge. Paul had an attitude of a servant in his heart. His life was changed. His life was transformed by Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you tonight, have you experienced the transforming grace of Christ in your life? Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. I don't know. But if you have not, I pray tonight you will. And if you and I, uh, as, as Christians here this evening, 
I pray tonight that we will preach the gospel to ourselves constantly, okay? And that we will be reminded of God's love for you and for me in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the Christ of Christmas. And the gospel is God's gospel. And his love is so amazing, so profound, so personal, so powerful. He reaches down and he touches sinners like us. And he transforms us. And he makes us his children. And what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. Do you think so? You're not sure? Come on, you can respond. It's okay, right? Yes. yes, that's what it is. And so I want to pray this evening that you and I will, will thank the Lord for his son Jesus. Thank the Lord for the best news ever. A news that can transform our lives for eternity. And you come tonight and celebrate the King's Supper this evening, knowing that our sin has been forgiven through the blood of Christ and we are made his children through faith in him. That is the good news, friends. That is the best news ever. Praise God. Let's pray.